I have a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, we can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can also listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 66 of History of the Marine Corps, The Monitor and the Merrimack. Last week's episode discussed the Marine Corps and the Navy's preparation for war. We covered the opening shot of the war, the Marines' participation in the first major land battle, and their participation in the first naval expedition of the war. This week's episode gets into a lot. We discuss the famous battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack, also known as the CSS Virginia, the first Medal of Honor issued to a Marine, a second attempt to take Fort Sumter, the use of torpedo boats, and the death of Commandant John Harris. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. By the end of 1861, the Union controlled the Hatteras Inlet, one of the Confederacy's most important ports. It housed many weapons, ammunition, and other supplies smuggled in by the English. The North controlling this important port was a huge blow to the Confederacy. Immediately after the capture of Hatteras, the Union Army and the Navy started planning to capture more Confederate ports along the southern coast of the United States. A joint operation consisting of 15,000 troops, commanded by General Sherman, assembled at Hampton Roads. They were joined by the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron, which was commanded by Flag Officer DuPont, who had extensive experience deploying Marines in amphibious operations during the Mexican-American War. 300 Marines were organized, and Major Reynolds took command. The Marines were given the brand new Springfield Model 1861 58 caliber musket to help with their mission. The price of these new muskets was about $20 each, the equivalent of $602 today. The Union Marines attached to the South Atlantic Squadron supported multiple battles and provided important reconnaissance for the United States. As the Union successfully captured southern ports, the Confederacy began to increase its naval presence to help defend against further losses. Back in 1854, the United States began construction on a new type of vessel, the Steam Screw Frigate, the most notable being the USS Merrimack. 
When the Confederacy surrounded the Norfolk Navy Yard in April 1861, she was one of the ships burnt by the sailors and Marines garrison there. Now that the Confederacy controlled Norfolk, they began restoring the ship for use by the Rebel Navy. The Confederacy restored the ship, and the USS Merrimack was renamed to the CSS Virginia and commissioned for war in February 1862. The plan was for the Virginia to destroy the Union blockade at Hampton Roads. On March 8, 1862, the Virginia made its way down the Elizabeth River to confront the Union wooden ships. At 1410, the Confederate ship fired at the USS Congress and the opening shot raked the deck of the Union ship. As the Virginia passed the Congress, she changed her focus towards the frigate Cumberland, which was the most powerful ship controlled by the Union. At the start of this battle, the Cumberland seemed like it had the upper hand. Its powerful guns managed to disable two of the cannons on the Virginia and killed 19 Confederate sailors on the opening shot. But the Confederacy responded with round and grape shot, which destroyed the gun deck of the Union vessel. Nine Union Marines died during this shot, but Lieutenant Charles Haywood, who would become the ninth Commandant of the Marine Corps, was able to keep the remaining Marines at their station and continued to fight. The CSS Virginia turned and directly faced the Cumberland. She sailed towards her target and crashed into the wooden ship with her iron ram effectively taking the Union ship out of the equation. This crushing blow caused the forward magazine to flood, and despite noble attempts to keep the pump active for two hours, the battle was over for the Cumberland. The water had risen to the main hatchway. The Marines and sailors who didn't sustain serious injuries and who were able to move on their own took the risk of abandoning the ship and jumped overboard. Those who were severely injured were left to go down with the ship. The Cumberland lost more than a hundred men, which was about a third of its crew. In his report to the commanding officer, Lieutenant Morris, who commanded the ship, summarized the fate of the men in a simple sentence, quote, I will only say, in conclusion, that all did their duty, and we sank with the American flag at its peak, unquote. With the Cumberland no longer a concern, the Confederacy turned its attention to the Congress. The conflict lasted until 1630, and Congress would surrender to the Virginia after a bloody battle. The deck of the Union ship was covered with bodies of sailors and Marines who tried to defend against this new type of ship. This battle was a turning point in naval warfare, and the steam-powered ironclad ship showed that it was superior than the traditional wooden ships. As the Virginia tried to leave the battleground, three more Union frigates tried to stop her, but strong winds limited their progress, and all three ships ran aground. The next day, the Confederate ship returned. This time, the Union would fight fire with fire and sent the Monitor to defend against the Virginia. As the Confederate ship advanced, it targeted one of the vessels that ran aground, the USS Minnesota. The first shots fired targeted the Minnesota. Fortunately for the Marines and sailors on the beach, the volley fell short. The two ironclad ships engaged in a heated battle, and the Virginia changed its focus temporarily to the Monitor. After firing multiple rounds, the Union ship needed to resupply, 
and she headed to shallower waters to bring up ammunition from her lockers. While she was replenishing her supplies, the CSS Virginia used this opportunity to attack the Minnesota again. The two ships exchanged shots, and the Minnesota unleashed an accurate and devastating broadside into the Virginia. This broadside would have demolished most wooden vessels, but the Virginia was relatively unaffected and continued to attack the Minnesota. By this time, the Monitor was back in business and charged the Virginia. The combined forces of the Monitor and the Minnesota, admittedly more from the Monitor, caused the Confederacy to retreat. In his supplementary report, Lieutenant Morris commended the courageous action of Marine Lieutenant Haywood. Quote, Owing to the hurried manner in which my official report to Captain Radford was made, I omitted to mention to you the gallant conduct of Lieutenant Charles Haywood, United States Marine Corps, whose bravery upon the occasion of the fight with the Merrimack won my highest applause. Unquote. Haywood's Marines fired the last shot of the battle at the Merrimack. The Monitor would move up the coast of Virginia and continue to attack Confederate targets. The combined Army and Navy forces would cause the Confederate troops at Norfolk to surrender, and in May, the Naval Yard was under the Union's control again. To prevent capture by Union forces, the CSS Virginia left Norfolk and was set on fire in May. But the Union continued its plan, and the Monitor teamed up with the Galena and multiple other ships and headed towards Richmond. The Confederacy deployed underwater obstructions that slowed the squadron's progress, and they used the Union's limited mobility as an opportunity to attack the fleet. Confederate artillery from shore fired at the Monitor and accurately hit its mark. As a result, the Monitor drifted downstream, which left the Galena to take out the Confederate shore batteries. As she was engaging, a Confederate shell hit one of the ship's powder boys, and ignited the round he was carrying. Marine Corporal John Mackey reassembled the confused survivors, evacuated the dead and wounded, and was able to get three of the Galena's guns operational again. Corporal John Mackey was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroic action, making him the first Marine to receive this new award. His citation read, On board the USS Galena and the attack on Fort Darling at Drewy's Bluff, James River on 15 May 1862. As enemy shellfire raked the deck of his ship, Corporal Mackey fearlessly maintained his musket fire against the rifle pits along the shore. And when ordered to fill vacancies at guns caused by men wounded and killed in action, manned the weapons with skill and courage. Union forces were making significant progress in the South. Although the Marines were assigned to DuPont Squadron at this time, the Navy and Army's combined forces were extremely effective, and he rarely deployed Reynolds and his Marines. DuPont didn't want to, quote, allow such an excellent organization to deteriorate from inactivity. So he released Reynolds from his command and sent most of the Marines back to Washington to better serve their country. He ordered Marine Lieutenant Lowry for duty on the flagship Wabash. Lowry and his 60-ish Marines were divided into squads and assigned as sharpshooters on multiple ships in the area. For the rest of 1862, Marines would participate in multiple engagements in Mississippi, Virginia, Tennessee, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and Louisiana. 
There was even one battalion of around 140 Marines who were organized and ordered to report to a new Navy yard at Vallejo, California. Marine Major Addison Garland was placed in charge of this detachment, and they sailed to California from New York on board the Ariel, a ship owned by Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the richest men at the time. The ship was lightly armed, and it was originally dedicated to carrying gold. However, the only cargo that would be on this ship would be Marines and civilians. As they were passing Cuba, they ran into the Confederate ship Alabama. As soon as the aerial was spotted, the Alabama gave chase. The aerial tried to escape, but the Confederate fired a warning shot, which convinced the captain of the aerial to surrender. The Confederacy took the Union Marines prisoner, but after promising not to take up arms against the Confederate sailors and Marines, they were released. The battalion would eventually reach California without further resistance from the Confederacy. The ongoing civil war was taking a huge toll on the number of men who were able to fight. Disease and high casualty rates significantly decreased the size of the Union military. So in March 1863, Congress enacted a draft. On July 11th, the first round of drawings for the draft commenced with little activity. During the second drawing, which took place two days later at New York City, a mob of 500 burst into the building and attacked. The police were significantly outnumbered, and reinforcements were called in to help restore order. Included in this force were 180 Marines, commanded by Captain John C. Grayson. The riot lasted four days, and rioters burned buildings and targeted African Americans. There were 120 killed, including 11 African American men who were hanged, and even a seven-year-old African-American boy, who was also hanged. Over 2,000 were injured. After order was restored, the draft continued without an issue. Out of the three-quarter of a million selected, only about 45,000 saw active duty. In July 1863, the Union Army launched a campaign known as Operations Against the Defense of Charleston. The Confederate Army constructed one of the toughest beachhead defenses at Fort Wagner. And although no Marines fought directly in this battle, it was an important turning point in the war. The 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry led the charge, one of the first African-American regiments of the war, and depicted in the film Glory. The battle took a substantial toll on the strength of Union troops, and the Army reached out to the Navy for assistance. A Marine battalion, led by Major Jacob Zeiland, was organized and immediately sent to help reinforce the army. Fort Wagner sustained heavy damage from a naval bombardment led by Rear Admiral John Dahlgren, and he decided that this would be a great opportunity to take back Fort Sumter. Dahlgren turned to Zeiland for his Marines and asked for, quote, one to two hundred resolute men, unquote. Major Zeiland split the request right down the middle and sent 150 Marines to help. On September 8th, the attack on Fort Sumter started. Commander Thomas H. Stevens led the entire expedition on Sumter. He divided forces into five divisions, consisting of around 100 men per division. The plan was to attack the fort at night. Each division would also have five or six boats that would be used to transport the troops to shore. 
Four of the divisions were comprised of sailors and marines who were assigned to the squadron ships. The 5th Division was made up entirely of marines, garrisoned at Morris Island under Captain Macaulay. When the attack commenced, there was a lot of confusion. It was extremely dark, which meant low vision, and to top it off, orders weren't clear. The division made up entirely of marines were responsible for covering the fort with musket fire, while the remaining divisions landed. As soon as the four divisions landed, Macaulay's detachment was responsible for securing the rear and following them as they advanced. The original plan called for the tugs towing the boats to get as close as possible to shore, cast off the boats, and have the tide drift them towards the fort. However, that didn't happen. For unknown reasons, the tugs turned without casting the boats and caused massive confusion for the landing party. This confusion eliminated the element of surprise, and soon, the other Confederate forts were aware of the raid. They began firing at the incoming Union troops. The Confederate troops at Fort Sumter were now engaged and managed to hold off the Marines and sailors attacking the fort. Macaulay's men were now separated, and some of the Marines headed towards the island, while the others headed towards the leading division. By the time Macaulay and his men were back on track, and the fort was within sight, he ran into multiple boats retreating away from the fort. Macaulay attempted to rally the retreating forces, but he failed to convince the men to turn back. With little option, he retreated as well. The Marines and sailors who managed to make it to shore were now in a tough spot. The Confederate troops set up an effective defense, and the Union troops weren't able to scale the fort's walls. They took the brunt of the musket fire and grenades launched by Confederate troops, as well as artillery fire from the surrounding defenses. Three of the boats were destroyed by the incoming grenades and artillery. The Confederate troops grabbed a locomotive lamp and shined it in the nearby water, exposing the Marines and sailors in their boats. As the light revealed each boat, Confederate soldiers fired their muskets and their canister and grape shot at the Union sailors and Marines. This incoming volley resulted in multiple deaths. The Union failed to take Fort Sumter, and many of the Marines and sailors who weren't killed were taken as prisoner, and they would remain POWs for a year. The number of deaths during this engagement for Union troops was around 80. Ten officers and 104 enlisted were missing. After some debate, the United States decided that taking Charleston would require more resources than originally expected. The number of deaths estimated far outweighed the value of this territory, and further efforts to capture Fort Sumter were called off. Macaulay's Marines were ordered to leave Morris Island and sent to Folly Island to support the naval ship stationed there. By the end of 1863, the number of naval vessels was significantly larger than at the start of the war. The number of Marine detachments serving at sea grew to over a hundred which required almost all enlisted Marines to serve on a ship during the Civil War. This increase of naval vessels made it impossible to organize any substantial land forces comprised of Marines. But despite being limited to sea, the Marines performed exceptionally well. Marines participated in most naval expeditions, and numerous non-commissioned officers were receiving honorable mentions in naval reports to Washington. The Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, highlighted both points in a report. Quote, 
The Colonel Commandant of the Marine Corps reports his command in a good state of discipline. Although its number is now fully equal to the quota authorized by law, he is unable to comply with all the requisitions for guards for seagoing vessels. The reports from the several squadrons and vessels of the service show that in the gallant deeds of the Navy, the Marines have borne an honorable part. Unquote. During the start of 1864, the Union started to focus its attention on North Carolina. This area was another important target, and Confederate soldiers and sailors guarded key points along the shore. But in the spring of 1864, the number of forces securing the territory was small and dispersed over a large area. The Confederate gunboats weren't heavily armored, and the ironclad ships couldn't navigate the shallow waters. The Union decided to take this opportunity to attack. One of the more interesting parts of this battle was between the Union steam frigate Wabash and a Confederate torpedo boat, the CSS David. In July 1863, the Confederacy understood the threat of ironclad ships, and they developed a solution to the impenetrable defenses. Multiple wealthy citizens from North Carolina offered rewards for sinking Union ships. $100,000 was offered to sinking the new Ironsides and the Wabash, and $50,000 for a monitor. David Ebaugh took up the challenge. He constructed a cigar-shaped boat with a steam engine that delivered a torpedo into a ship's hull. His new invention was about 5 feet in diameter and 48 and a half feet long. This new vessel was launched in the summer of 1863. And although the torpedo boat was involved in a few battles, the most notable probably being the attack on New Ironsides, Marines would be involved with one of her last. On April 18th, the CSS David targeted the USS Wabash. Lookouts on the Wabash saw the torpedo boat approaching, and they alerted the officer of the deck, Ensign Charles H. Crane. Crane assembled the Marines on the Wabash and positioned them to attack the David with musket fire. The timing and well-directed fire from the Marines resulted in the Wabash avoiding the attack from the David. Neither side sustained substantial damage, but what happened to the David after this battle isn't exactly known. There aren't any records of this vessel's fate, and it's assumed that the Union confiscated the ship after they took Charleston in 1865. On May 12, 1864, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, John Harris, died at headquarters in Washington. Almost a month later, Major Jacob Zylan would be appointed as the 7th Commandant of the Marine Corps. We covered Zylan's actions in multiple episodes. This Marine participated in the conquest of California during the Mexican-American War. He played a major part in the U.S. expedition to Japan, and he fought in multiple battles during the American Civil War. He was battle-hardened and had extensive experience with Marine Corps operations. Zylan would have a lot of success as Commandant. The day after he was commissioned, Zylan's Marines would face one of the most successful and notorious Confederate raiding vessels in an unlikely location, France. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll cover the end of the Civil War. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Congress and a Plan to Stop It by Lawrence Lessig. Corruption. 
The majority of Americans, regardless of the political party, believe corruption exists in our political system. This book takes a look at how money from lobbyists harms the American political system. One of the most eye-opening facts from the author is the amount of time politicians spend fundraising. 30 to 70% of a politician's time is spent soliciting money from large donors. Whether intentional or not, this means that more attention is given to those who donate large sums of money as opposed to the average U.S. citizen. There's some eye-opening and somewhat depressing information about how the American political systems operate in this book. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.